welcome to the Truth Is Allowed podcast. Today's guest is Nigel Fisher, an international and crisis management consultant and former Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. With over 30 years of experience leading some of the most important missions of the UN and its agencies in countries like Syria, Yemen, Rwanda, Afghanistan, Haiti, and many others. In this episode, we talked about his on-the-ground experience in some of the most dangerous conflicts in the world, like the Rwandan genocide or the war in the Middle East, where Nigel at some point had to negotiate with a Taliban that had murdered one of his colleagues. Very interesting. We also discussed the effectiveness of the UN's Security Council and the Human Rights Commission, and to what extent can these organisms help alleviate some of the conflicts like the Venezuelan crisis or the Syrian war, when countries like Russia, China, or the U.S. have veto power and also interests in the region. Nigel also shared his view on humans as a species and how power is almost the main cause for most of the world problems. He also explained how he remained optimistic during some of his most dramatic experiences. And before we begin the episode, I have to say that Nigel is a very wise and brilliant man with a world-class experience, but also a unique humbleness. And even after witnessing some of the most atrocious acts of humankind, Nigel remains one of the most optimistic people I've met in a long time. In Nigel's own words, if you're not an optimist, what the heck are you doing here? I hope you enjoy the episode. Nigel Fisher, welcome to the Truth Is Allowed podcast. It is an honor and a privilege to have you here today. How are you doing? Great, Wissam. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to our conversation. For sure, for sure, Nigel. I've, I have to tell you, I've done extensive research on most of the conflicts that, that you've been in, that you've participated, most of the positions and even agencies as well that you were involved with in the United Nations, in UNICEF as well. And I still have to say, I need more research to do because it is a very complex world. It is a very complicated, um, just overall organization and not even compared to the actual issues that you had on the ground. I wanna start off talking about that incident that you had in Iraq, 1992, in which you were in a convoy or you were, uh, in, in some sort of vehicle, I'm not sure where you were going, but you were stopped by a local group, armed group. And in this exchange, in this discussion, this issue that happened, I, I believe your driver was shot. How, how, how did that happen? What happened? How did you solve that problem, Nigel? Okay, the situation was a little different. Um, okay. At that time, I was the deputy regional director for UNICEF in the Middle East okay. and had been the focal point for uh, the Iraq war, uh, mm -hmm. the evacuation of people from Kuwait and the Gulf, uh, the refugees. We had a million refugees in Jordan, etc. Mm -hmm. I'd gone into Iraq during the fighting. Mm -hmm. And in fact, had gone to the south of Iraq, Basra, while Saddam was secretly moving his weapons around and the Americans were bombing. And mm -hmm. then when the war was over, I was sent to northern Iraq to start up UNICEF operations. Mm -hmm. And uh, this incident that you're talking about happened while I was there. I was not on the convoy, okay. uh, but 
a UNICEF convoy was delivering food supplies uh, mm -hmm. to some areas in northern Iraq. Mm -hmm. And the, the convoy, one of the convoys, was uh, raided by a tribe from another area mm -hmm. who attacked it, stole the food, and killed one of our colleagues in the driver. So my task was to go down and negotiate to find out what was happening because we needed mm -hmm. access because people were starving. They needed food. Mm -hmm. So uh, I went to meet this tribal leader in his home territory. Now, normally in the Middle East, as you may know, mm -hmm. even your enemies are really polite. They will welcome you, invite you to sit down, have a cup of tea, and then the negotiation starts. Well, this mm -hmm. didn't happen. He didn't invite me to sit down. He didn't mm -hmm. invite me for a cup of tea and started shouting at me. And um, Why was that? Well, he was just so... He was angry, obviously. Uh, mm -hmm. He was angry that, as it turned out, this food was going through the land that he controlled, but none mm. was being dropped off in his territory. It was going to a neighboring uh, tribe. Mm -hmm. So I went into what I call my Om mode. Now, Om Mani Padme Hum is a, Bud a Buddhist incantation, okay. which monks use to sort of calm and get into ritual. And okay. I, I have certain techniques of trying to calm myself down in tense situations. So okay. he was shouting at me. He, he was this close to me, you know, and I could feel the spittle on my face. Good job it wasn't COVID days. And, <laughs> and, um, and I was just focusing on his forehead. And I was just saying to myself while he was shouting, Fisher, calm down. Mm -hmm. um, he's not shouting at you as Nigel Fisher. He's shouting at what you represent, which is mm -hmm. the UN. And he thinks an injustice has been created. However, mm. he's killed somebody, so we have to work our way through this. So mm. he was shouting. When he finally finished, I said, thank you for your welcome, which there was no welcome. Yeah. Um, I'm here to listen, and I want to understand the challenges you face. So right then, I didn't attack him, and I kind of yeah. disarmed him, and he, he started to calm down. Mm -hmm. And then he said, sit down. Would you like a cup of tea? Wow. And, and then he said, well, you are being very unfair. Okay. My people are starving. You're bringing food through my territory and you're not leaving any behind and you're sending it all. What, how do you think my people feel? How do they think they feel about me because I can't get them food? Of course. I said, I understand. Um, then what we have to do is ensure that you get some of the food supplies for your mm -hmm. people, right? Mm -hmm. He said, yes. I said, but we have an issue, you know. You have killed one of my colleagues, and this could have very serious consequences. Mm -hmm. But I'm not here to make a judgment. I'm here to ensure that people in need get support. And obviously, mm -hmm. you have people in need. So I said, okay, what we need to do then is have an agreement. One mm -hmm. is that we will include food packages for your people. And two mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. when our trucks go through your territory, you will provide protection for them. Okay. And you will not take all the food, you will take what is agreed. Mm -hmm. And it went on, but that was our basic agreement. And so I went back and thereafter, the, the convoys went through successfully. Obviously, I got criticized by some colleagues saying, mm -hmm. this man is a criminal, you should bring him to court, etc. I said, if I started accusing him, two things would happen. We would not reach an agreement. He might well have killed me out of frustration, mm -hmm. and there would be no end to the suffering. My job mm -hmm. and our job as humanitarians is to treat all people equally when they are in need. And therefore, without making any political judgment at this stage, 
My concern is to get food to starving people, be them, be they in his tribal area or elsewhere. And that, so it went on from there. Wow, Nigel, that requires a tremendous level of concentration and courage as well. As a you like in the position that you had, is there a manual at all? Is there a process, a step, or to do list in when something like this happens? Um, not as such. I mean, the UN has security manuals. Um, okay. It has um, manuals on what to do if you're stopped, what to do if you're taken hostage, what to do if you're take, caught in gunfire. Mm -hmm. um, there are there are training courses on how to negotiate. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the heat of the moment, you probably forget your manuals and you have to go back to something within you. And I've been negotiating and had been by then for, for quite a long time. So, mm -hmm. you know, your basic premise is I am not going to lecture. I am going to listen. Okay. I am going to understand. I need to know what that person's perspective is. Mm -hmm. What are their difficulties? Mm -hmm. What drives them? For example, I'll give you another case. In, in Congo, when I was in Rwanda after the genocide, mm -hmm. um, we had gangsters uh, who were recruiting kids to be soldiers and abusing them and raping girls, you name it. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to go and negotiate with those guys to try and release some of those children. And so I'm going in thinking, what's the angle? And the angle for them is money and power. Mm -hmm. So... I went in uh, to one particular uh, warlord in, mm -hmm. in Eastern Congo and we started discussing. And, um, you know, after a while I said, have you heard of the International Convention on the Rights of the Child? Mm -hmm. He said, no. I said, well, that con convention, one of the articles, Article 38, states that no child should be recruited into armed forces and mm -hmm. a range of other provisions. Um, so under that and under international human rights law, etc., mm -hmm. you have uh, you are in great danger of being declared a war criminal for having committed crimes against human humanity. And if that happens, you will not be able to go anywhere. You will have no political power in your country. You will not be recognized internationally. You will have no future as a leader or a powerful person or an influential per person rich person in your country wow. so i think to try and get around that what we could do is you need to start releasing some of those child soldiers and well i didn't say some i said those child soldiers mm -hmm. and in the end um well fairly rapidly he agreed to release uh, some child soldiers not because he didn't want them to fight he wanted them to fight but he was more worried about having no political role in the future Mm -hmm. and having no access to resources, minerals, the wealth, which was his interest. So I was telling him, you're going to cut your legs off if you continue with this kind of behavior. So I wasn't, my aim wasn't to bring him to the international tribunal. That's for somebody else. But it was mm -hmm. to say, one of the things you're doing, which is not only threatening these children, but threatening your own future, is you are recruiting and abusing kids. Stop it. And so he released them. Wow. Wow. Nigel, as you know, I come from Venezuela. My family is from Lebanon. And these some, some sort of warlords or gangs that are lawless, I haven't experienced or engaged with them, but I am, I am familiarized with them up to some point. You know, in Venezuela, we do have 
these gangs that if they stop you on the streets, there's there's no law or police whatsoever that will save you. How do you even how are you even confident that they will at least listen or respect your life, okay, when they don't follow any boundary at all whatsoever? Like what would happen if within your negotiation strategy, which seems to be try to make them understand that their interests are not going to be met if they continue to do a terrible activity. What happens if they actually don't care? Like what happens if they're not even that smart or as as clever as this warlord that you spoke to? Did you ever have a case like that in which you feared for your life during a negotiation? There have been other instances where UN envoys have been killed or they've disappeared. Um, there's a number of things. Um, I also focus a lot on intelligence and security. Although I've been in humanitarian and development work, we have to act on intelligence. Uh, we have to know what the situation is. So we usually have people on the ground, and they're quite often nationals who are putting their own lives at risk, who are gathering information. Um, what is happening here? Um, how much control does this guy have over his uh, militia? Um, what is the experience of talking to him? Uh, would he want to talk? And this guy was already named as a potential international criminal. So he knew, he knew what was going on. Um, and then it's to check out, um, is it safe to travel? Um, can we talk? So feelers are actually put out. And um, you know somebody would have asked him, if a UN envoy comes to see you, Will you be prepared to talk to that person? And will you guarantee that person's safety in the course of those negotiations? Um, same um, in Afghanistan. I was actually in charge of the overall security for all UN personnel. So we could do, do, used to do constant intelligence and we updated our intelligence daily, weekly, as the case was. So it was a constantly changing. But um, you take risks, but you don't take unintelligent risks. You have to take informed risks. Of course. So there is some sort of in informed risk. Nevertheless, the risk is still there. You mentioned Rwanda. And I, I am 24. I know about the Rwandan genocide because I wanted to learn about it. I didn't learn this in school. I was not even born yet. I was, not, I was born in 96. But it is definitely one of the most modern um, conflicts that are just completely, it's just a massacre. There's, there's no other way to put it. There's no discussion. There's no debate. It was just a complete, reckless massacre. In 1994, um, you were appointed to go to Rwanda in representation of the UN. What, or, the, or UNICEF. What was your position there? What agency were you representing in Rwanda? Um, I was representing UNICEF. UNICEF. And I was given the title of special representative, which would mean I was in charge of operations in Rwanda, but also in all the neighboring countries where there were Rwandan refugees. So that was a chunk of Congo, a chunk of Tanzania, a chunk of Uganda, and even a little bit of Burundi, which also was having its own war. First thing, I want to say it wasn't a conflict, as you say, it was a massacre, it was genocide. And it was only at the time I was going in at the end of the genocide that it really turned into a conflict because troops came in from Uganda, Rwandans who'd been in exile, to throw out the genocidal regime. But it was essentially a, a, a massacre. And I was basically given the task by UNICEF 
of starting up our reconstruction programs, you know, um, without too much idea of what would happen, how we do it. And uh, when I got to Kenya, to Nairobi, the regional headquarters of the UN, they said, oh, you won't be able to get in there before Christmas. Uh, it's too risky. So I sat in Kenya for a week and said, this is nonsense, we're going in. So I selected two uh, staff, a national and an international, a Rwandan one, and we flew in on a UN military plane and we landed at the airport. Um, the, the war was still on at that point. The, the, genocide, the genocidal government had been pushed out of Kigali, the capital, but they were still in the country. Which, by the way, just to provide the audience some context, the, the conflict, well, the, the massacre had started around April. By then, Nigel, how many deaths, deaths do you think had occurred? I understand that the, the overall numbers were around 500 to 600,000 people. No, keep going. It was more like 800,000 to a million. Oof. It was it was incredible, and um, the first thing I did on getting to uh, uh, Kigali, the capital, was to be sick because the uh, the um, plane, the military plane, had been taking avoidance maneuvers. So it was flying along and it, between fifty and two hundred meters, and it would just be constantly going up and down and so on. So by the time I got there, I wasn't feeling so well. But the second thing to hit me was just the smell of death. There were bodies everywhere, everywhere, decaying, etc., everywhere. And um, the first few nights, we slept uh, in the office of, of another agency. There was nobody there, but we slept in their office. Um, there were just two of us. Um, we assessed the situation. I went to see the um, military who had come in to throw out the genocidal folks and said, how soon before we can come in? And they said, come now. So I just went back to uh, Kenya, called my team together and said, we're going back. So the next couple of days, I went back with 13 people, then more came and within six weeks, we had 100 staff. And um, then we started looking at the situation. And uh, you know, it, even when we found an office, uh, I had to walk through the windows to claim the office because you know, the door was locked, etc. There were bodies in the basement that we had to move and, and so on. It was, it was an awful situation. Um, and for me, that, those memories are some of the strongest I have. Um, we had incidents uh, where one of my staff members at Rwandan said, can I go to my community to see what's happened to my family? I sent her with <clears throat> one of my colleagues, an international staff member, and about uh, three quarter of an hour later, I just got them on the walkie-talkie. We had walkie-talkies in those days, and they were both just crying. And they said, you've got to come, you've got to come. So I got in a jeep, went down there, and they were standing next to this mass grave where we could just see rags of clothing and an arm here and a bone there, etc. And this was basically what was left of this staff member's family and her community, and eventually, when it was investigated, there were 103 bodies in that mass grave and they were everywhere. So these are some of the, in a sense, the traumatic things. Seeing a child who's in totally catatonic, only just rocking back and forward, they've been so traumatized. Um, hoping to train women to be primary teachers and helping them to understand how to work with traumatized children. And they said, well, what about our trauma? We've been raped, and so what about us? And so we have to work with them. That's the, the, the difficult side. Um, the, the, I guess the inspirational side is we were able to do so many things 
that hadn't been done before in this kind of situation, to set up programs for tracing over 100,000 kids who'd been separated from families or orphaned, um, trying to get kids back into school. Yes, to learn, but also because school is normality, it's stable, stability, etc. And even then, we had to bring in a landmine clearance group from Ethiopia to check all the, all the sites. But we did a number of things which, to me, really made a difference. And then we're taking on by UNICEF in, in other situations. But yeah, Rwanda for me was definitely, I guess, the one where I was affected most deeply and it took me the longest to recover. Nigel, how do you prepare for something like that? Because, you know, as a UNICEF or UN representative, as, an, as someone who works in international relations and, and in conflicts and situations of high tension, of, of a lot of violence, there's no way for you to prepare psychologically and emotionally for a genocide or just to arrive to a place and see piles of bodies. How, how did that hit you? How were you even, were you prepared at all to absorb something like that? I was aware of what the issues were, obviously. I had not been in that kind of extreme situation of death everywhere. But I'd been working in conflict and disaster management for years. You develop certain skills. One is um, you, have to be you have to be calm. You have to recognize your emotion and deal with it. You can stop. Like even today, if I'm getting angry or excited, I stop. I hold my pulse and I count for one minute slowly and it brings my it brings my pulse down um, so the other thing is you need to go into a situation where you're not focused on the problems you're focused on possible solutions you go there because there are problems but if you have no solutions then get the hell out again there's no point being there so you've got to be very solution oriented you explore you listen to people if, if they're around um, you explore possibilities, you bring your knowledge of what's been possible elsewhere. And then you try and bring a team together who you know will... So I got to, you know, as much as I could, select the people I wanted. And some people arrived, I didn't know, but you, you're looking for solutions, you're looking for teams which work, you're looking for team building. Like, initially, every day, I would bring the team together because they're all working in their own ways and, and, and seeing awful things. And just to, it was just to say, how are you doing today? What did you see today? What ideas do you have? What are we doing? What could we do? Um, so always, you know, getting people not to think about the problems. We're here to make a difference. And you're keeping an eye on your staff. If you see somebody who's working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you go and stop and say, stop. Go for a break. Get out of here. You know, you're, you're going to burn yourself out. So, and the last thing is humor. Um, I joke around a lot, and that was hardly a joke situation. And, but, but you've got to be light. So even in that situation, trying to keep people on the up, people want to make a difference. So making sure they're doing something useful, that they know they're appreciated, but then bringing that element of humor and so on. It, it worked. Now, talking about human humor and Rwanda, it sounds strange, but you do have to try and strike that balance. Yes, I definitely agree with that last humor part, to be honest. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a constant conversation between Venezuelans, which is that we're well known for our humor and our comedy. And our country could be 
just in a huge crisis and we're still going to make jokes and memes and laugh about it, even though we might be ourselves in that tragedy, which at, at this point, I choose to believe it's more of a benefit than a curse. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, it was not a laughing situation, but For sure. you, you but... could crack a joke occasionally. The other thing was just building this team spirit. As I said, we brought we brought um, people together um, to talk, but also we I, I acquired a couple of houses. So we actually brought in a, a, um, a group of people who normally do, do catering for uh, trekking and they became our caterers. And then I found out that there were some Ghanaians in the peacekeeping mission of the UN who played music and they had High Life Band, which is, you know, West African music. So I said, okay, every Friday, can you come and play at our canteen? So people were all together. They had this spilling, a spirit of friendship and fellowship. And then every, every Friday we'd have music. I mean, music is such a great healer. Fantastic. Yeah. It's not a matter of laughing within the tragedy, but always keeping that those values present. Otherwise, you won't function. There's no way you can survive or, or help anyone at all. Nigel, when you get to places like that, how do you know where to start? You know, when you when you get there and you see, you describe how you fix the office, you build your team, uh, you, uh, you focused on solutions, right? But when there's so many problems on the air, right? Which I, I can assume like diseases, rape, violence, the same political conflicts, demeanor. Where do you start? Well, again, it's, um, I come back to a rather general term, it's intelligence again, that you, you, you're collecting information, you follow the situation, um, you have the data that existed before of what the situation is like. You talk to people. So, for example, there was already a UN military peacekeeping mission led by General Romeo Dallaire, Canadian. And so I went along to talk to him about, because he'd been having missions all over the country. Um, what are you doing? What needs to be done? Um, and incidentally, um, our old UNICEF office was on his compound, but they weren't using it because it had been mined and booby-trapped. And uh, so uh, I said, hmm, where should I go for an office? He said, well, there's a new mayor in town. She'd just been here a week. Go and, go and uh, talk to her. So I, I went to talk to this two-meter-tall, two uh, major, major Rose, her name was. And she said, well, you know, most of the offices in town are empty and I don't know when the people are coming back. She says, so help yourself. So I said, which is the best office in town? She said, well, the World Bank was pretty comfortable. I said, where are they? So we went to the building that they were in and that's where I walked through the window. And then I got on my walkie-talkie and called uh, um, Washington, the headquarters of the World Bank, and said, uh, yeah, this is UNICEF Kigali. We've just liberated your office. Can we keep it for a while? And they said, yes, of course. <laughs> so, so we did that. But, you know, then I was with UNICEF. because So we know about child trauma. We know about child protection. We know about family reunification of kids who've lost their parents. We know the essentials of healthcare, uh, mass immunization, the importance of education. So then you start... Uh, gathering intelligence. What was the, and we have national staff, of course, um, not forgetting that about a th one third of our national staff had been massacred and up to Hold six. On, can you 60, say that again? One third of our national staff had been massacred during the genocide. Jesus Christ. And about 60 of their family members. So we were dealing with internal trauma too. I actually brought in a, a psychologist just to work with the staff full time to deal with their own trauma. Um, but it's interesting, um, and I'm jumping around a bit, but 
people initially who are traumatized, they need help to deal with the trauma. One, your reaction your to trauma is normal. It's not you that are crazy, it's a situation that's crazy. So your reaction is normal. Number two, you need to get that that's rattling around in your brain out of you. You know, they're thinking back to those traumatic events and often they were repeated. The rape, the burning of the house, the killing, the, you name it. And then so psychologists and, and trained staff help them to get out of this. But after a time they say, okay, enough, I need to do something. And I've found with experience that one of the best ways of helping people who've been through this kind of situation to recover is they need to do something useful. So whether it's our staff, it's making sure that in the program work they're doing, they can see results, they feel they're contributing. Uh, with those women who'd been raped and, and violated, the, one of the best roads to recovery for them was becoming teachers back in school, helping kids to recover and learn again. They were doing something useful and they were also contributing to the future because the, the, the present was chaos. The present had been destroyed but they could see a future for themselves and their kids. So, you know, you go through all that kind of, of, of process. But, but coming back, as I say, so you have your framework, uh, you, have, you have your pro programmatic framework, you know about international rights conventions of protections that kids need. So then I, I, I pick people who, people with experience in reunification of kids separated from their family, educators. How do we start re-educating kids in this kind of system? And that's where we came up with the idea. We mapped where all the schools were. I brought in that Ethiopian military team I mentioned to check that there are no unexploded ordnance or, or mines in the schools. And then we said, what do you do in a situation where there's pretty well no school materials and no teachers? So we actually went around Rwanda. We sent out teams and to the neighboring refugee camps and said, who's been a teacher? Small response. Who's got a grade five education? More. Okay. You want to be a teacher? Yeah. Okay. So, so we bring them together and we start to train them. And then he said, well, they have no materials. What do we do about that? And in the meantime, the new government had come in by this time, it was July. And they, they said, we want to open the schools in September, less than eight weeks away. And you think, oh, well, okay. So we, we, we brainstormed and we came up with the idea of what we call the school in the box. So it was basically a design of school materials, uh, everything from cloth charts you hang on the wall to books and exercise books for the kids. And we said, what do they need for three months? And what does teachers need for three months? So, you know, and then, so we designed a box um, which contained the tin box, the box itself, the wooden box. You could take it off, paint it, and that became a blackboard. And then the, the tin box was light enough to be carried by one or two people anywhere. So they could take it on their head if they wanted to and set up shop under a tree, in a school, whatever. And, and that in September, the schools opened and hundreds of thousands of kids went back to school. You know, I say hundreds of thousands gradually because we, we were bringing them back um, from where they'd been. We used to be traveling and we'd see a group of children sitting under a tree in the middle of nowhere. And we'd go and say, what, what's happening? They were all orphans or separated from families. They were ragged, there hardly any food. So then we have to start a system of, of kind of uh, centers to take care of these separated children. And then we, we, we got in, a, it was a, one of the early uses of digital cameras. 
And basically, we had a team going around camps, villages, neighboring countries, just taking pictures of children. And then we would create a database, put them on, on, on uh, posters, and just put them all over the country and in, 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 um, in the camps with a question. Do you know this child? Do you recognize this child? Do you know where this child comes from? Do you know any family members? You know, and uh, today there are concerns about showing kids' faces on television, but then it was a matter of survival. And, you know, over the course of the next two, two and a half years, we and our partners, and the Red Cross was a big part of this too, we were able to reunite about 80 or 90,000 children with their families or with extended family members and many others who were adopted by, by families. Um, so to me, that was a huge achievement. We had to fend off people from Canada and elsewhere who immediately wanted to adopt kids, you know, out of a, a humanitarian sense. And we said, hold on. First of all, we need to know whether there are family members or community members who will take these children in before we start thinking of, of sending them away. So that, that, was just, that was just one aspect of the work. Yeah. When you have, when you're in areas of the world that are so troubled and it seems that the state has failed, there's either a failed state or there are autonomous groups within the country that have military power, okay? Number one, wh why do these things even happen in the first place? Like, what are the fundamental issues that drive countries to complete devastation and genocide? Like what happened in Rwanda, like what has, has, like what has happened in Syria, to some of the conflicts that have happened in Venezuela. Obviously, these are all conflicts of different natures. There's several cause, causes and actors and factors that apply to this. But in your international experience, what was the main or some of the key factors that you saw on each single location that could create or cause that conflict? I don't know if this is a very difficult no, it's right. it's okay. question. It's but... okay. Well, there's to me several aspects and obviously I have my own perspective. I would say let's start off with two things, um, conflict management and leadership. Every society, every family, every group of friends, every office, you find conflict there. People are competing. People uh, have different ambitions. Uh, they have jealousies, etc., etc. Um, there are cliques. So this seems to be the human condition. We compete and conflict. But what kind of conflict? Is it the conflict of argument? Is it the conflict of... The issue is, how do you peacefully manage conflict? To me, if you have disputes in an office or disputes in your society, yeah, okay, you sit down, you discuss, you negotiate, you know. Um, you're trying to look for how you, as some say, get to yes. How do you get a win for all sides or where nobody gets everything they want, but nobody feels that they've been particularly de deprived. So to me, negotiated resolution of conflict is a key element of relatively stable societies. If you can negotiate without physical conflict, armed conflict, you're getting there. So that's one. So it's when those systems break down and it's often about power, it's about money, it's about control of economic resources, but it's also about ethnicity. You know, in Rwanda, there were traditional rival, rivalries between the two main groups, the Hutu and the Tutsi. And that brings me to the issue of leadership. To me, one of the biggest failings that leads to armed conflict is 
poor leadership. If you look at Rwanda again, the government that committed the genocide, um, what was the situation in Rwanda? Small country, um, a lot of donors, uh, international donors have put money into it, but it had a very, it had the highest concentration of population per square kilometer in Africa. So there was a Can lot of- Can you say it again? Can you say yeah, it again? It, it had the densest, it had the greatest population density per square kilometer in all of Africa. So there was really a com competition for land, competition for resources. Leadership, good leadership is where you say, we have a problem here. We don't have enough resources. How are we gonna work this out? What new avenues can we explore? That's good leadership. In Rwanda, the genocidal leaders said, you know why we have this problem? It's because that other group is to blame. And they are taking all the resources. And the answer is to get rid of them. And those people are no better than cockroaches. So you can squash them with your heel and don't feel badly about it. And so that's what drove the genocide, is blame, get rid of those people, and you solve the problem. So that's bad leadership. So to me, leadership is critical. You know, um, you take um, Syria, Assad. In, as you know, in, in Islam, there are two main branches of Islam, Sunni and Shia. So Assad is Shia. And in Syria, the Shia were in the minority. Uh, I don't know, I can't remember how much, 5, 10, 15% of the population. The majority are Sunni. So he and his father basically kept power for decades by repression. And then when people started to rise up and protest, protest in peaceful demonstrations, his response was not, hmm, how can I make things better? Because there was, there was, there was hunger, there was, there was economic troubles in the country because of poor harvests, etc. He could have said, we need to find a way of working this out together. He said, no, send out the troops. These people shouldn't be negotiating at all, uh, kill them. And as, as the civil uh, war got worse, he just said, annihilate these people. You know, and he, he, he is, as a result, um, vast areas of Syria are in total desolation and it led to other consequences. So, you know, the other side, and, and I get to another layer of this is along with this kind of exploitative leadership has to go support from the international side so their impunity can continue. And this is one of the big issues. One thing is to do bad things, but to get away with it, with no consequences, with impunity, is one of the big problems internationally. And this is where you get to one of the, in a sense, failings of the United Nations at the political level. For example, the Security Council, where you just have a few members so, for example, in the Syria case, Russia especially, but to some extent China, would always veto any resolution criticizing Syria and Assad because he was an ally of Syria. So you got a political blockage to resolving a, a, a social and economic problem. Long explanation, but, but to, me, yeah, to me, the issue of poor leadership, um, the inability to manage conflict peaceably, peaceably um, the issue of blaming rather than, than saying, hey, we've all got a win here, and then impunity backed up by external forces. These are all part of the mix. Of course. Nigel, what's the role? I, I love the fact that you mentioned the inability of the UN at, in some of its agencies and cases to interfere in any, in any aspect for whatever reason it is, for the bureaucracy or for the way it's built or for the rules that are within each agency. But for example, when you mention 
the Security Council. A similar situation happens in the in the Human Rights Council, where you have countries like Venezuela that have participated in that council, Cuba, Afghanistan, Iraq, even Russia and China, which are countries in which their governments are well known for violating human rights. And Saudi Arabia, no doubt, right? So do you think it is time or there should be a different mechanism in which the UN filters certain countries to access these agencies if they don't comply with certain requirements to be in them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really a difficult one because even on the Human Rights Council, um, it is a, an intergovernmental agency or entity and therefore governments negotiate to see who gets on it. And once you get to that situation, you have different blocks of people, of governments with different interests. And it ceases to be about human rights and it ceases to be about humanitarian principles. It's all about politics. So this is the thing about the UN. The UN, sometimes people talk the UN and they think it's some kind of monolith. But it's responsible not. for everything. But yeah. it's not. You have the political side, the Security Council and the General Assembly especially. But the Security Council is purely governed by political considerations. And even though they are supposed to implement international principles, international human rights law, they are governed by um, politics, which is always compromised. Um, but you have other organizations which are international standards-setting organizations, like the World Trade Organization. Then you have all the development and humanitarian agencies which, which, which try and maintain neutrality and impartiality in conflicts um, in order to reach people and basically say, do no harm, we've got to help people stay alive, all people are equal in terms of their need. So UNICEF, UN High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR, World Food Programme, and so on, a whole range of agencies like that. And their job is to go in regardless of the political dimension and provide humanitarian assistance and help uh, the development recovery. So, and, and it's not to say I was a, a leader of these humanitarian teams in several countries. You get involved in politics, you negotiate, but you don't take sides. Whoever you're dealing with, I don't care whether it's the U.S. ambassador or the head of state of the country. You're saying we need to do this in order to protect people, to save their lives, to give them a future. So, you know, you're, you're walking that tightrope. But I want to make that point. There are many different parts of the U.N. Uh, the humanitarian development agencies should not be driven by polit political considerations. But there are other parts of the U.N. that are very much driven by political considerations. For sure. One misconception that in Venezuela we've had is that we've always expected the UN to do something about it and almost like to solve the issue for us. And it's it's a very layered, multi-complex situation, but it, it goes with the assumption that, yeah, someone else should solve our problems, our immediate problems, when at the end of the day, it's, I think, in a lot of cases, a responsibility of a lot of communities to organize themselves as well and motor change in some other cases, yeah. right? But on, on the other hand, you've got, let's say on the Venezuela situation, you've got interested parties like Russia and the US, both of which have their perspectives, neither of which are completely right by any means, and they try and basically neutralize the other. So uh, we need a, a, a UN intervention, says, says one. The other says, no, we don't. 
um, and so it goes on. So it's it's where you get that kind of situation where um, it's very difficult to act. So even for humanitarians going, you need some authorization. Yeah, you need some political negotiation with the authority. With the authority, but even from the UN, you know. So so. You, you, you kind of work through that minefield um, in order to get access. A lot of the agencies of the UN, especially the one that you, you worked and, and you participated in, focus in immediate problems and solutions that could save lives and are necessary by every single mean. Now, all these solutions are under a bigger umbrella, the macro umbrella, which is the whole political situation. When we see the case of Afghanistan or Syria, the job that the work that you were doing, were doing there was life saving. And we need more people like you to do that. But then once, for example, all these children go up, grow up, they're almost still stuck within this whole macro situation, which is the Syrian dictatorship and situation that, that just exists in Syria. Well, clearly, I mean, things aren't solved in Syria by any means. Um, one, one of the ways in which the UN presses forward from the immediate, end the conflict, provide humanitarian assistance, is the creation of, of special missions that are created by the Secretary General. And these are run by, yet again, two different departments, either the Department of Peacekeeping Affairs or the Department of Political Affairs. And I've been part of two peacekeeping missions as the Deputy Special Representative of the Secretary General. That's overseeing all of the agencies from the UN or outside, NGOs, regional banks you know, who are involved both in humanitarian, but also in recovery. And recovery is part of the answer because you can't just save lives. You've got to ask, for what purpose? For what kind of life? So in a sense, even while you're looking at humanitarian um, approaches, how do you protect people? Uh, how do you save lives? How do you make sure they, they continue to feed? You're looking forward. So that, for example, even humanitarian action, people hate handouts, even if people are suffering. They hate lining up in a camp for food, etc. It's, 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 when they have nothing, it's an insult to their dignity, you know. They want some pride. So what, what do you do? You look for things, how can we employ people to work rather than give them handouts? Even if it's clearing up rubble or, yeah, to empower them. Um, and then at the same time, you're looking at, okay, what was the system that existed before? Education, health, the economic system, financial system. How can we help either rebuild it or build something better? And so a peacekeeping mission, for example, it will have people like me on the purely humanitarian development side. But I was also dealing with things like, how do you reestablish the rule of law? What does a ju system, justice system? Because without a rule of law, all of this stuff is meaningless. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> How can one measure the commitment of the government to its people? And, you know, the UN spends a lot of money on elections. My own perspective is if you have a bad system, then elections will repeat the problem. But if you could get a government to agree to be measured by its ability to provide decent basic education for everybody, decent basic health care for everybody, and start to look at how you create a social safety net for the most vulnerable, and how you can start to invest in the economy, and how the government will start to um, manage public contracts transparently and openly instead of corruptly, and how can you separate out the judiciary from the government. These are all elements. How do you ensure that women have a role to play in this society? 
All of these elements are part of a recovery process. You're looking longer term. So you're dealing with the two together. And as I said, the development and the humanitarian then cross over into the political, the judicial, um, the issues of rule of law, security. Police in many countries are part of the exploitative system. How do you start to change that? So these are all, and you know, I'm not saying the, the answers are easy, but these are all part of the process of trying to move beyond helping people stay alive to asking the next question, for what kind of life? In what kind of society? Yeah, and it's incredibly interesting. It's complex, but very interesting. And I find it exciting because it is the best example of how difficult it is for us human beings to live in the society we, we live in. I think a lot of people take for granted everything. When it took decades to build what we have in a lot of, as you said, you know, well-established countries or, or some sort of developed countries, when in, in most of the planet, we're still trying to get to a certain point of stability or at least institutional st stability. In and, and I think important too is, is progress is not linear. Uh, you do not start at a low period and gradually work yourself up to a better place. It's much more like this. You know, you'll start off well, you progress, you fall back, there's conflict, you renew, you advance. It, this, this is the human condition. We can't seem to necessarily always build on what is obvious that will lead to progress. We, we compete. No, you've got too much. I want, you know. It's time that that party was out of control uh, and, and we want to be in control. So, you know, you start insulting them and, and, and all the rest of it. Well, you have to look at our own politics. I get so tired of, of this jaded politics we have. What is the purpose of leadership and politicians? It is to make a difference for the society, its people, their social situation, the economy, etc. It is not to be fighting and insulting each other and so on. And we need some new political paradigm, even in you know, a, a country like Canada. We have our dark colonial history. We have the genocide of our First Nations. We have our black populations too, have been oppressed for so long. So even in Canada, we tend to think of ourselves as a pretty good nation, and, which we are in many respects, but we have to deal with our skeletons in our closet too. What were some of the governments that would say, hey, I think this government or this nation, this state, has done a particularly good job? Um, it varies. I mean, if I go back to when I started, which was in prehistory back in the 70s, uh, then uh, one of my heroes was President Nyerere of Tanzania. And he was uh, introducing African socialism uh, and, and raising the concerns I mentioned, saying we need to measure the success of our government by the well-being of our people. I would say the situation has, has changed a bit since then. Um, the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, have always been amongst the strongest um, proponents of a rights-based approach to development, etc. They're, uh, they're, they're very good. The Norwegians especially do a lot in behind-the-scenes negotiation in conflict to try and keep warring parties back together. You, uh, yeah, you group Cuba in with what I assume were countries you didn't think very much of in, re in relation to human rights. Let me just yeah. say about Cuba in my please, experience. Please, please. Cuba has, first of all, domestically, for many decades, you couldn't look for a better system of early child care, 
education and healthcare than in Cuba. I'm not talking about economic policy, but at least social policy. Um, and they translated that into what they call international brigades. I lived in Indochina, in Laos, um, after the first Indochina war there. After the, and you had hundreds of Cuban doctors really doing excellent work. When I was in Haiti, the most impactful response to the cholera epidemic, at least initially, it was by Cubans and Cuban doctors who sent massive waves. So I have a lot of time for Cuba. Okay, politics aside, etc. But on social policy, good. Who else? I would say, um, if you look at leadership, um, Nelson Mandela stands out. I mean, yeah. you know, a, a god amongst men, and um, there was a lot of hope while he was alive. Since eroded, proving my point that nothing is linear in terms of progression. Things go up and down. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I've missed out other countries. Senegal is pretty good. Ghana is doing well. Um, I, I'd have to dig around to find some other examples, but you know. It's those qualities of which don't occur all the time, leadership uh, and ability to, to really f crystallize issues and deal with them. I would say Angela Merkel in West Europe, Western Europe stands out as the best leader uh, of any for a long time. And she was around for 20 years. Do you think years. she's the best leader nowadays? Well, I mean... She's you know, on her way out, but do you think she, she's... she's... She has a really good record. Okay really faced challenges over the last few years with, with, with the wave of immigration, but even then she tried her best. But I find her astuteness in dealing with political and economic crises and so on, even dealing with Trump, was, was, was outstanding. So, you know, it comes down to outstanding leaders. So. Nigel, what's your opinion on the United States nowadays as a... As a <laughs> I, had to, I had to ask it. As a, as a world power and just to provide more more context, because it's a very general and wide question. Um, well, blah, 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 blah. oh, something's wrong with my microphone. I can't talk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, the U.S. That's a really difficult one. Um, it is the supporter, financially and otherwise, of many of the most important humanitarian and development missions that exist around the world, whether the financing goes through um, the UN and other multilateral uh, systems, whether it goes through uh, non-governmental organizations or whether it goes through um, um, the private sector. But it has a dark history in terms of uh, international intervention. Um, and I think Americans don't know enough about the US's role in the world. Um, sure, it has, it has stood up for and helped to create many of the founding principles that govern, govern an international action today and human rights law, the foundation of, of the United Nations that started in 1946 in Bretton Woods in the US and so on. Um, but on the other side, driven by, if you go back to the Cold War, etc., it, it does have a history of, of intervention. Uh, which which exists till today, um, so what can I say? You know, it's 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 um, dark side and bright side, um, and it, it's an interesting balance because almost on every single aspect in society, the U the U.S. almost contradicts itself as a nation, and we can go from topics like just political topics, you know, like left and right, guns or no guns, abortion or no abortion, 
um, capitalism or socialism, even to international um, situations. Like, yes, they have a huge, huge, like undeniable history of interventionism that has, I think up to this point, affected a lot of countries' progress and development still, still. Like when you see situations in the Middle East, when you see countries in South America that were also related somehow with CIA scoops, etc. Some of them have, haven't recovered yet. But then on the other side, you have the U.S. as the leading um, donor of a lot of these missions as well. Well, it, again, it's all about power, their view of the world, of their role in the world, of the um, systems that should govern the world. But yeah, you go back to um, Chile and Argentina in the 70s and, and way beyond. It, as, as there were a lot, a lot of sort of hands behind that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's very mixed. I think one of the big problems, well, it depends on leadership. I mean, even, I'm not saying things are perfect under Biden, but it's certainly night and day compared with the dark days of Trump to see what Biden is trying to do. But I think many Americans are captive of their own myth and believe that they are cause for good in the world and need to learn about that to see where they are and where they're not. And they, they talk about being the greatest democracy, but look how many people are below the poverty line. Look how many people don't get access to a decent education. Look the fact that healthcare is not a universal right. And in each of those cases, um, it tends to be people of color who are suffering most. So how, how do you start? You need to come back to, it, 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 this is a trite, a trite statement, but what is the education system? What information goes into that education system? And, and, you know, we have to deal with this in Canada. We also have our own foundational and societal myths that we, haven't, that we, we need to deal with. Um, but to me, one of the most critical issues about education is, does it enable kids to think critically, ask questions, solve problems, collaborate, work together, be tolerant of difference? Because if you have a society where young people grow into adults with that kind of mentality, those kinds of skill sets, you are much less likely to follow any strange you know, leader or train of thought without being able to say, hey, hang on, I need to analyze that. This just doesn't sound right to me. And this is not just applicable to the US, it's everywhere. Yeah, I agree, I agree. I like how you define the right type of education that every country should have because in Venezuela, for example, at this point, and, and just for people that are listening, and I'm sure, Nigel, you're well aware of what's happening in Venezuela, but we're going through a humanitarian crisis and political crisis in which the party in government, which has been there for over two decades now, has the means and the control of every single aspect of the society, economical, political, the media, the education, etc. So at this point, someone in Venezuela who wants to see a positive change wouldn't even ask for an educational reform or for better education. But what you define as proper education would actually create a change for people to think crit critically and independently. Do you think that is that possible nowadays in a country like the U.S.? Or let's not let's not focus on the U.S. Let's say most um, liberal democracies in the world, when we are exposed to so much politics, because even now education has been politicized. Yeah, it, it is entirely possible, but it demands a political class who see it as important. 
if you look traditionally in any country of, of the world, when a new party gets a leak, uh, elected, does anybody fight to be Minister of Social Welfare or, or Education or Health? No. They fight to be Minister of Finance, Minister of Transport, Minister of Infrastructure, Minister of the Economy. This is where the money and the power are. Um, and it's just, and then you tend to get often, not always, you, you get some of the less politically powerful people who are assigned these, what are seen as soft ministries. The other thing is, quite often, you know, I've talked to politicians who said, yeah, but you know, you don't make money out of Ministry of Education or Ministry of Health. They're not investment, you know, they're expenditure ministries. The investment ones are transport. I said, you're not investing in children. You're not investing in healthcare. Do you know what the economic returns are of that? So <clears throat> there's a lot of mindset problems. And I would say this general in terms of political parties and those who take power. Their priorities from my perspective are skewed. To me, we live in a society, not just so that each of us can do the best that we can, which we should, but it's to ensure that the people at the bottom are not left out. And to me, at that end, the basic obligation of a society is to ensure some kind of safety net for everybody. Um, and surely part of that must be access to a decent education or even before that childcare, regardless of your, your economic level. Access to health care, which doesn't cripple you um, in term financially, etc. Um, even you know, the right to work, uh, thinking about what skills are going to be needed? How do we retrain our population? This is often seen as a kind of the soft side of governance, but to me, this, this area is crucial. My concern though is that, and, and again, I want to hear your opinion on this, in a lot of cases, either educational, uh, police reform, even the rules for elections in a lot of these well-established democracies are flawed at some point. Um, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm an optimist myself. I consider myself an optimist. But sometimes change seems too difficult to see in a lifetime. Because I think you're an optimist as well. And when I see you with all the experience you have, my first thought is always, Nigel's just a very happy, charismatic, optimistic person. Even though you've lived a lot of the bad and dark sides of, of humanity. Well, I'm constantly happy, happy now that I've had my lobotomy. Um, no, no. Um, no uh, to me, honestly, you have no choice but to be an optimist. Because I often say, if you're not an optimist, why are you alive? You know? So to me, you have no choice but to be an optimist. Even if optimism doesn't always seem sensible, to me, it's the only route. Um, now, what was the first part of your question? I've always... <laughs> The lobotomy part threw me off a little <laughs> When you have systems that are very difficult to change and that rely on the political side of things, how do you remain optimistic on change? Because for every situation where you can see no change or deterioration, you can see examples of progress. And as I say, progress is not linear. So some countries might be up, some countries might be down. Uh, some regimes going forward, some backward. But it's not all the same and there's change. Throughout history and even over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we have countless um, examples of people, systems, institutions making a difference. Um, I look at you know, the world of finance. You look at Mark Carney, 
who used to be um, um, president of the Bank of England. He's Canadian. And now he, he, for years he's been saying climate, the climate crisis is our, the biggest financial risk we face because unless we start to look at it early, our financial system will collapse. That's leadership and he's looking way ahead. Um, John Kerry in the US is doing the same and you can look all over the world to, to people leading, um, leading um, the climate um, rebellion, let's say. To me, one of the, the greatest aspects too is to me, your generation, and it's not to devolve responsibility from mine, which has managed to mess up a lot of things, but there are a lot of people in your generation who are very committed to make a difference, who do not see economic development without any conditions as the answer, who are super concerned as they need to be about the climate crisis. I think we should start talking about climate change. It's already changing and we're in crisis. We have to deal with it. So you can see many examples of progress, even in a Rwanda. You know, people say, well, what gave you hope? I remember the very first time that we were able to reunite a boy with his mother, September, middle of September in 1994. I can still see that super clearly. I can remember going to a house where a woman who'd lost her own kids, they'd been killed, had adopted nine other kids and was taking care of them. Uh, so I could go on and on. A, a young girl in Congo who um, had been attacked and raped and had been taken by one of these warlords and held for two years before she escaped. And when I met her, she was working with a group of women who were lawyers uh, and, and, and politicians to try and bring these people to justice. And people were telling her, telling her shut up, they'll come after you again. And she said, she was 13, 14. She said, I want them to know my name. I want them to see my face. And I want them to know I am unafraid. Wow, That's, that is leadership. So, you know, you take, in the midst of all of this confusion and negativity, you take inspiring examples, just as I take a Mandela or a Merkel or whatever at all levels. So. Why are you an optimist? One, because you are refusing to accept reality. Uh, but the other is you do see inspiration at every level, from the individual to the societal. It may change, it may go backwards, but it will come again. And as I say, if, if you're not an, uh, an, uh, an optimist, what the heck are you going to do? After all the years in, in your career and all the thousands of lives that you probably saved, all the thousands of children and families that you've reun re reunited and the meaningful work that you've done throughout the world. What do you think is the truth behind the, the human being as a species? And we, this is, a, this is a whole, uh, another dimension of a question, but I, I like to have these conversations and, and try to understand why we think the way we think and, and, and why we, we do the things we do either positive or negative, good or bad. So what do you think is the truth behind the nature of the human being? Like, why do you think we're here? What, what got us here? Where are we going? In 10 words or less? As many as you want. <laughs> why are we here? Well, first of all, we're an, we're an animal. Huh? We're a mammal. Um, many of our reactions and uh, impulses have still um, not evolved as our conditions have evolved. I think some of our impulses still go back to the need to survive amidst, I don't know, 
hostile environments, hostile forces, hostile animals, you name it. Uh, so that issue of survival, um, if you look in the animal kingdom, it's all about power, survival, um, you know, um, changing alliances, uh, whether you're an ape or a lion, you know. Um, so we are, we, are, we are part of that animal kingdom. Um, so there's that element too. We have a bigger brain, I think, than, uh, than most of the others, and we're able to use it. So we have enormous creativity. Uh, we've come a long way since the first hunter-gatherers settled down into villages in Mesopotamia and so on. Um, but at each, at each step of civilization, the Greeks, the Romans, um, Himya, which was you know, once in Yemen or, or in Mesopotamia, we have still been riven by conflict. And then if you look back to natural disasters, which we have refused to recognize, have often ended civilizations and empires. Um, and you can look back to previous situations where either we've denuded entire countries of their tree cover or, or, or whatever, we've exploited resources, uh, we've, we've chopped down um, all the trees so we could build huge fleets to go and conquer new worlds, etc. Um, it seems we don't know when to stop. Ambition and drive are the drivers of so much of the progress we have achieved. They are also the drivers of many of the disasters that we've brought upon ourselves. So that's a human condition. Is, is, it's a constant struggle about managing these impulses and whether they lead to a positive or negative impact. So I'm blathering on and not necessarily answering your question, but no, we're, we're complex at the end of it. We're an animal, but we're also intelligent. Um, and, you know, those <laughs> that soup yeah, comes so out in different yeah, ways. It's, it's, it's a great paradox. Like we're struggling with humanity. We're struggling with our humanity. Um, Nigel, what do you think is the biggest pressing issue right now in the world other than climate change? And how can one help? Like, how can I support for meaningful change from here, from Canada, where I live, to some of the most pressing issues in the world? What is some of the action that this generation, my generation, can take? Well, you, you, you've put out of contention the, the first three on my list, which is climate change, climate change, and climate change, and the climate crisis. Um, I think that is the biggest challenge we face because it, it's affecting everything. Our survival as people, the displacement of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, the end of life as we know it in many parts of the world. Um, it will lead to incredible conflict as people move and compete for resources or they compete for scarce food resources. It's driving some of us like Elon Musk to give up and say, okay, let's just go to Mars. Um, so um, so it, to me, so much of it relates to the climate crisis. But, but I, I think um, one of the problems we face right now is... is um, given that there are many points of power in the world, what we call multipolarity, we have you know, the US and the West, we have China, we have other emerging groups in Africa, Asia and so on, is the lack of ability to achieve a consensus 
on basic international norms, which already exist. We have a whole range of, of international conventions, rules, um, things that should protect against impunity, against corruption, against exploitation. But these different polarities, different interests, stop us from coming together on the critical issues that affect the future of the whole of humanity. And, and you know, given all of that, um, I would say political deficiencies, they come, it's really challenging to think, are we really going to be able to uh, manage the, no, we're not going to be able to manage, respond to the change that will, is coming because of the climate crisis. And part of that too is the inability of people who hold power and economic wealth currently, the inability of many of them, to see the change and to embrace the change instead of resisting it. And as Mark Carney said, who I referred to uh, earlier, the longer we resist, the higher will be the bill for us in the end, financially and as humanity. So it, I have to include climate in that element. But again, once again, it's that disagreement on basic norms. It's the inability to change, especially when you have the power and the resources now. How can we hold accountable some of these countries that don't respect certain norms when it comes to the environment? Because it's, a, it's another difficult one. Like, because the first thing that pops to mind is, okay, sanctions. But then the sanctions, who do they affect? People. All up, to, up to some point. I would say in our own country, countries like it, like it etc., I think the pressure that's coming from, let's say, your generation, the younger generation, um, these are going to be voters soon, and politicians want to get elected. And these people are saying, no, you're not going to get elected if you neglect the environment, if you don't make basic change, if we don't look at renewable energy and end our dependence on fossil fuels. So you have to, again, it's like dealing with those warlords. You have to look at the pressure points, the interest points, um, both positive and negative, you know, there are, there is a growing outcry for change. 70%, 75% of people in the U.S. now believe that the climate crisis is upon us and a risk. That's a huge change from even 10, 15 years ago. It's too late, but at least it's coming. So I think the dynamic is changing. Um, once trade is affected, power is affected, the economy is affected, more people will come on board. So it's a combination. It depends on the political system, the economic interests, etc. Complex. Complex, but interesting. We need these conversations in order to find those solutions. Right? Nigel, fantastic. I have one more question for you. Um, and this has been incredible, by the way. So I, I, I'm not going to stop thanking you. My last question would be, what is one single thing, one single personal truth that you discovered in your whole career? That's a difficult one. One truth. Um, I come back to my optimism. It's you are mad to be an optimist, but there are always situations which justify your optimism. So after all I've said about humanitarian, humanity and the humanitarian condition, there are a lot of people who want to do the right thing and do do the right thing at all levels. So that's encouraging. And I don't for a moment dismiss the other side of the coin where there's an awful lot of people trying to mess things up, intentionally so. So there's that one. Um, you know, on the personal side, um, 
and in terms of one's personal finances and economy, I'm not suffering at all. But I look out, I, I, I'm, I'm living in a beautiful house and I'm looking out at a beautiful, beautiful garden. People will tell me I own this. From my own perspective, I say, actually, I don't own anything. I'm just stewarding it for a time. Um, I'm borrowing it um, and I should take care of it. So this idea of mine to me is, is a basic human problem. If, if we start to say we're here actually to steward, to steward my kids until they grow up, to steward this garden so that it can produce, etc., to steward society so that we can start to do good for all, to steward the environment so that we don't destroy it and ourselves in the process. So there's my multiple answer to your one truth. <laughs> Nigel Fisher, thank you so much for being in the Truth is Allowed podcast. This was absolutely amazing. Thank you, Wissam. You're a good interviewer and I enjoyed it very much. Hey there, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please, as always, let me know what you think about the show, anything that I should improve or continue doing. I value your feedback a lot. See you in the next one.